the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Eight minutes after four o'clock is our time. Today we're going to talk with Kay Wills Wyma. She is the author of Not the Boss of Us, Putting Overwhelmed in Its Place in a Do-All, Be-All world. She'll join us later this hour. And then in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Julio Rivera, who's an editorial director of Reactionary Times, on competing narratives um, with regard to what happened in Puerto Rico. We're not talking about the death toll. We can, I suppose, speculate back and forth on that. But we're going to talk about uh, the fact that it took so long to restore the infrastructure and who he believes is to blame. So we'll get into that later in the five o'clock hour. First, looking at some of the developing news stories, of course, Hurricane Florence has been downgraded to a Category 2 storm. Authorities warn it's still extremely dangerous, could strengthen again when it makes landfall in the U.S. either uh, tonight or Friday morning. Far-left Bernie Sanders-inspired candidate Matt Brown was trounced on Wednesday by incumbent Democratic Governor Gina Riamondo of Rhode Island's uh, Democratic gubernatorial primary, while pro-Trump candidate Alan Fung won the GOP contest. On Thursday, New York voters will decide the heated Democratic gubernatorial primary race between former Sex and the City star Cynthia Nixon and Governor Andrew Cuomo. It's been something of an unpleasant race. And new text messages between former FBI officials Peter Strzok and Lisa Page reveal other Justice Department employees were leaking information to reporters before the start of the Trump-Russian collusion investigation and that Lisa Page interned with the Clintons at one point. Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh's answers to more than 1,200 questions submitted by mostly Senate Democrats after his four-day confirmation hearing were released on Wednesday by the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, First, Hurricane Florence uh, downgraded from a Category 2 storm, or rather from a 4 to a Category 2 storm late Wednesday, but was still considered extremely dangerous and potentially life-threatening. Florence's nighttime winds were uh, down to 110 miles per hour from a high of 140, but forecasters expect the hurricane to jump back to Category 4 by Thursday morning. They predict the storm will make landfall Thursday night or sometime Friday. North and South Carolina, along with Virginia, Maryland, and Georgia, remain under states of emergency ahead of what they're calling a Mike Tyson punch the storm is expected to deliver. And a far-left Democrat who had been uh, had the backing, rather, of groups allied with Bernie Sanders fell decisively in Wednesday's Rhode Island Democratic gubernatorial primary, capping a bitter slugfest, marking the latest in a series of setbacks for fringe progressive groups seeking to take their views into the mainstream. Incumbent Governor, uh, Democratic Governor Gina Riamondo uh, easily brushed off an insurgent challenge from former Secretary of State Matt Brown, who refused to take money from corporate PACs and heavily courted Sanders voters in the state during the campaign. Raimondo wins uh, set win rather sets up a rematch with pro-Trump Mayor Alan Fung, who came in just 4.5 points behind Riamondo in the three-way race in 2014. Meanwhile, New York's Democratic voters will decide Thursday between the incumbent Governor Andrew Cuomo, challenger Cynthia Nixon, the former Sex in the City cast member. Uh, Nixon has painted Cuomo as an establishment Democrat who's failed to address New York City's beleaguered subways 
delays and corruption. Cuomo has touted accomplishments such as gun control, free public college tuition and a higher minimum wage. He's tried to make the race about President Trump, arguing that he's the best qualified to put back rather to push back against the White House. And new text messages between XVI, uh, FBI uh, employees uh, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page reveal others were leaking like mad. That's a quote in the run up to the Trump-Russia collusion probe, according to new communications between the former lovers obtained exclusively by Fox News. The lengthy exchange dated December 15th of 2016 appears to reveal a political leak operation for political purposes. Oh, remind me to tell you tomorrow about the times during a story about the RNC hacks, Page texted Strzok. And more than uh, they already did, I told you, Quinn uh, told me they, uh, they, quoting, they pulling out all the stops on some story, Strzok replied. Again, a quote. A source uh, told Fox News that Quinn could refer to Richard Quinn, who served as the chief of the media and investigative publicity section of the FBI's Office of Public Affairs. Quinn could not be reached for comment. Strzok again replied, think our sisters have begun leaking like mad, scorned and worried and political. They're kicking into overdrive, end quote. And the Senate Judiciary Committee on Wednesday released Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh's responses to more than 1,200 questions submitted by mostly Senate Democrats following his four-day hearing last week. Kavanaugh's responses, which amounted to more than 260 pages, answered the senator's questions on topics that ranged from abortion, executive power, his personal finances. Kavanaugh's answers came ahead of the Judiciary Committee's scheduled Thursday meeting to consider his confirmation. A vote is expected later this month. We'll see how that goes. Um, And on this day in 1971, a four-day inmate rebellion at the Attica Correctional Facility in western New York ends as police and guards stormed that prison. The ordeal and final assault claimed the lives of some 32 inmates and 11 hostages. And on this day in 1962, Mississippi Governor Ross Barnett rejects the U.S. Supreme Court's order for the University of Mississippi to admit James Meredith, a black student, declaring in a televised address, we will not drink from the cup of genocide. Hmm. Didn't really work out that well for him. Well, Hurricane Florence so late Wednesday was downgraded. We are now learning that it could be upgraded once it makes landfall, but still considered an extremely dangerous storm that could hit the East Coast with an historic surge. Florence's nighttime winds uh, were downgraded from 140 to 110. The National Weather Service said that the, uh, in a tweet rather, that its weakening only refers to maximum winds. The wind field has uh, expanded and storm surge potential is still at catastrophic levels. Do you want to um, uh, get hit with a train or do you want to get hit with a cement truck, says uh, Jeff Byard. An administration uh, administrator, rather, with the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Not uh, great choices. President Trump on Wednesday said that as Hurricane Florence makes it ways makes its way toward the U.S., uh, protection of life is the absolute highest priority. The hurricane, hurricane, rather, according to the president, will be one of the biggest ever to hit the East Coast. One of the biggest ever to hit our country. More than 10 million people were under storm watches and warnings on Wednesday as Hurricane Florence, described as the storm of a lifetime, approaches. Uh, the uh, center says the uh, storm is moving northwest at 16 miles per hour, has maximum sustained winds of 115 miles per hour. North and South Carolina, along with Virginia, Maryland and Georgia, remain under states of emergency. Forecasters predict the storm will make landfall uh, soon. In addition to the hurricane strength winds blowing ashore on Friday, Florence has the potential to bring a storm surge upwards of six feet in uh, parts of the coastline. 
including up to 13 feet in Cape uh, from Cape Fear to Cape Lookout. The hurricane could also produce heavy and excessive rainfall up to 40 inches in isolated areas in the Carolinas and anywhere between 6 to 12 inches elsewhere in the Appalachians and the Mid-Atlantic region. It will also pass directly over two nuclear power plants, the Brunswick Nuclear Plant, which is located some 30 miles south of uh, Wilmington, as well as Sheeran Harris Nuclear Plant in New Hill, about 23 miles from Raleigh. Well, the National Weather Service and Hurricane said, rather, Hurricane Florence will likely be the storm of a lifetime for portions of the Carolina coast. A few tornadoes are possible in eastern North Carolina through Friday. Airlines have canceled nearly a thousand flights and counting as landfall is expected very, very soon. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a few moments. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Kay Wills-Wyma. She's the author of Not the Boss of Us, Putting Overwhelmed in Its Place in a Do-All, Be-All World. That's coming up later this hour. Well, the Senate on Wednesday overwhelmingly approved the first of three so-called minibus spending packages aimed at funding most of the federal government when its new budget year ends, or rather begins, on October 1st. The $146 billion measure, which funds the Energy Department, Veterans Programs, and the Legislative Branch, was passed 92 to 5. Senators Jeff Flake, Ed Markey, Elizabeth Warren, Kristen Gillibrand, and Rand Paul oppose the measure. The House is set to vote on the package on Thursday. And all three um, compromise spending packages, uh, if they're all approved by both chambers and signed by the president, they would account for nearly 90 percent of annual spending, including the military and most civilian agencies. Lawmakers, however, will still need to come up with stopgap legislation to fund a portion of the government, including the Department of Homeland Security. The minibus bill represents a marked departure from recent years when Congress routinely they've ignored agency specific spending measures in favor of so-called omnibus packages that fund the entire government all at once. The president vowed in March that he wouldn't sign another bloated bill. The American people expect us to get our work done, he said. If we continue to work together in a bipartisan manner, we can successfully fund nearly 90 percent of the federal government on time through a regular year, something Congress has not been able to do in many years. Years. Well, this package is not perfect, says the uh, Senate Appropriations Committee Chairman Richard Shelby, a Republican out of Alabama. But that is the nature of compromise. Um, uh, Patrick Leahy added, the ranking member of the appropriations panel. Well, GOP leaders have said they uh, prefer to address the issue after the midterm elections. With Republicans running the White House and both chambers of Congress, GOP leaders have worried that voters would blame them for a shutdown, worsening the party's uh, prospects of retaining congressional control. We still are in favor of the wall. We still want to get funding for the wall. But we think the best time to have that discussion is after the election. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell um, has said. We'll see how that uh, pans out in the election. Well, Iran is feeling the pain from the sweeping sanctions revived by President Trump in August. The U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, said in an exclusive uh, wide-ranging interview on Wednesday, they feel weak and we are suffocating them to the point that they have to address ballistic missiles. They have to address their support for terrorism, she says, uh, with Brett Baer. The Trump administration this summer restored major sanctions against Iran in the areas of automobiles, gold and other key metals. The uh, sanctions had been suspended under the former president, uh, the uh, Obama administration, with the 2015 nuclear deal, pummeling the value of currency there and threatening to further unravel the Islamic country's already struggling economy. Well, president Trump pulled the U.S. out of the nuclear deal in May, saying its enforcement and monitoring mechanisms 
were too lenient in calling for Iran to return to the negotiating table. Even more severe U.S. sanctions against Iran's banking and energy sector, sectors rather, are slated to go into effect in November, including restrictions on Iran's oil industry that could cut off a crucial source of uh, hard currency. Our focus right now, Haley uh, went on to say, is on the Iranian people, acknowledging the unrest in the country. I mean, they have protested, they have spoken out, they have said they want a better life, but at the end of the day, we can't allow them to have any nuclear program. Uh, Responding to a report that Syrian President Bashar al-Assad has approved a gas attack in Idlib in the province there, the last remaining rebel stronghold in the country, the ambassador also issued a pointed warning to Iran and other key players in the Middle East. What we told, uh, you know, the Syrians, the Russians and the Iranians was, well, twice. We have warned you not to use chemical weapons. Twice you have used it. And twice President Trump has acted. Don't test us again because I think the odds are very much against them. Uh, for Russia and uh, and Iran, both allies of the Syrian government, uh, retaking Idlib is crucial to complete what has uh, uh, been seen as a military victory in Syria's civil war after Syrian troops recaptured nearly all other major towns and cities there. We'll continue to follow uh, that stories. Well, the federal government's official poverty figures for 2017, the first year of the Trump administration, were released on Wednesday, showing an improvement over those of its predecessor. But other data released the day before were even more heartening. The Census Bureau's official statistics indicate that 12.3 percent of the population and 17.5 percent of children live in families that earn less than the official poverty threshold or about twenty five thousand dollars for a family of four. Those figures are significantly better than any of the eight years of the previous administration, but remain unexceptional by uh, longer-term historical standards. However, a more important de- uh, data set was released on Tuesday when the Bureau of Labor Statistics quietly posted a consumer expenditure survey, microdata, with that um, a data set, it, uh, it calculated that only 3.7% of the population live in families that reported spending less than the federal government's official poverty threshold last year. That's less than a third of the 12.3% who are officially considered to, to be poor and within the 0.5% of record low. Similarly, 8.4% of children live in families who spend less than the poverty threshold. Less than half of the 17.5% who are officially considered to be poor, establishing a new all-time record low for child poverty. Still unacceptable, but certainly progress indicating moving in the right direction. Well, why are f- official poverty figures so much higher than uh, these alternative figures that uh, that have been calculated previously? Well, the Census Bureau considers only the money income each family reports in an annual survey. Uh, these official money income figures omit roughly 95% of the 1.1 trillion U.S. taxpayer pr- uh, payers rather provide in means-tested cash, food, housing, and medical benefits for low-income people each year. It also excludes substantial off-the-books earnings of low-income households. Yet when asked about their spending, these households are likely to disclose many of the purchases that their welfare benefits and off-the-books earnings enable. In fact, poor families routinely report spending an average of $2.40 for every dollar of official money income. Uh, they typically have air conditioning, computer, DVD players, and cell phones, rarely report materials hardships such as hunger, eviction, or having utilities cut off. Their spending, not their income, better represents uh, their true living conditions. Again, just clarifying uh, why these numbers look uh, look better. Uh, there's much uh, good news for the American people in the official poverty figures released on Wednesday, but the Trump administration should do more than just tout these figures. It should reconsider the federal 
government's official definition and work to establish an expenditure-based uh, metric that gives us a clearer understanding of what's happening and hopefully move, continue to move in the right direction. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Up next, we're going to talk with Kay Wills uh, Wyma. She's the author of Not the Boss of Us, Putting Overwhelmed in Its Place in a Do-All, Be-All World. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 33 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, let me ask you a question. Are any one of us a fan of feeling overwhelmed? Well, life's pressures, expectations, and circumstances can steal more than they give. When overwhelmed went too far, desperately hurting someone they knew, my next guest, Kay Wyma and her family, they called it out and called it quits. Because even though feeling overwhelmed has become the new normal, it doesn't have to own us. What if you could... Take the negative nature of being overwhelmed and diffuse it, or better yet, flip it to good and be overwhelmed by truth instead. Well, in her new book, Not the Boss of Us, Putting Overwhelmed in Its Place in a Do-All, Be-All World, Kay Wills Wisema, mother of five, former White House staffer, international banker and entrepreneur, encourages readers to stop listening to unhelpful messages and replace them with life-giving truth. She writes, we need to let our actions act like a cool drink of water so that we're fully hydrated, constantly being overwhelmed by truth rather than caving to the overwhelming issues of the world. Well, instead of uh, quick tips or superficial solutions to complex problems, she digs to the heart of the matter. She replaces heavy expectations with a liberating truth that God has something better for us. And through compelling narrative laced with laughter, tears, and, well, frank honesty, she walks alongside readers encouraging us to call out issues that invite life's overwhelmed to reframe them and instead be overwhelmed by truth with all its freedom, peace, hope, and joy available in its midst. And isn't that what we all want? Well, Kay Wills Wymuff is a former White House staffer, international banker, and entrepreneur. She's a mom of five. She writes about seeing beyond life's pressures in order to navigate life and thrive together. She's the author of two books and blogs at a popular uh, uh, site, video podcasts uh, at um, saysomethingshow.com. She's been featured on outlets such as the Today Show, CNN, Focus on the Family, She's contributed to the Huffington Post, New York Times, Motherload, D Magazine, Thriving Families, and more. She lives in Dallas, Texas with her family. And I'm overwhelmed just <laughs> reading her, her um, uh, bio, but we're just delighted to have her with us to talk about her book that helps us to deal with that thing called Overwhelmed. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. And I'm overwhelmed by that. <laughs> my word. <laughs> well, I'm hoping you don't do it all at once and in the course oh, of a single goodness. day. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? I think we're told that... That we can do all and be all and the whole thing is it's just not at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I almost feel silly asking the question, but what were the specific circumstances that you and your family faced that really um, made you realize we got to do something different? We've got to do something about this overwhelm uh, that that confronts us regularly. Well, Georgine, I, I mean, we live in Dallas, Texas, and maybe that's enough said. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> but I never, I've never liked it. I didn't like what it did to me when I was younger. And I think we lived in a day and age then when it, you know, it's hard to think that it was as on steroids as it is today. Although I'm sure my mother thought the same thing, you know, when she was a kid. But I didn't, you know, performance pressures messed with me as a child. And even, quite frankly, religion pressures, you know, I felt like I was in and out all the time. And 
and it was a lot to deal with and it didn't bode well for me. It landed me with an eating disorder. And when I learned about grace after going through that period, I was like, wow, I didn't know that I didn't have to do everything and be everything. And this is great freedom that was ushered in. And I just guess when I had kids, I was determined to not let that mess with them. And so even from when they were little, you know, they each came, we have five kids and it's right now it's almost 22 to 11 and, Mm. you know, they come out different shapes and sizes and I didn't want one to feel thin and feel great and one to feel thick and feel terrible. And I was like, we're not playing that game. And so I've never liked the game. When it, when it hit one of my daughter's friends when she was a freshman in high school, as a 14-year-old, one of her good friends, just the pressure was too much for her. The pressures to get the grades, the pressure, pressures to be on teams, the pressures to be the best, to be the best, to be the best. And uh, she decided that life would be better without her. That's when it went too far. Mm. And I was like, you know, this I'll write about because it makes me mad. All, like, I don't like what it does to people parents, you know, my, my niece that, you know, newly married and all the pressures that hit people these days. And it's like, no, it doesn't get to do what it does. And that's steal from us. It steals our joy. It steals our peace. And, and I see they're going, why aren't we overwhelmed by truth? You know, the thing that lasts forever, like that has and is and always will be, because that's where life is. And, and I've uh, yelled it at my kids for years. And I was like, well, I'm just going to write it down. And that's, that's how this book came, came into being. Well, let me just thank you for writing it down, because I think so many of us <laughs> really need to think through there is a way out. There's a way to deal with is, the natural yeah. course of life in the 21st century in America. And we can step out of that into something much more beautiful and peaceful. Yes. And it's around us all the time. And it's not in some Pollyanna sort of way. It's actually real. And it's like the, you know, the messages that we get from when we're young is to perform. I was with some gals the other morning at a, at a weekly study that we do together. And we were talking about the words grace and peace. And it was sort of like grace is the essence and peace is what you get. And, and it was like, because that doesn't involve performance. And it's sort of like, if you peel back the layers, you start to realize there's performance pressures from the get-go. You could have a mom just newly pregnant that's already getting performance pressures, even with a baby that's not born. And then the baby's born, and it's like, well, what age do they crawl? And how, you know, how fast do they crawl? And when did they learn Chinese? Well, I hope it was when they were two, because mine knows, you know, Russian. And I mean, it's just like, ah, and you have all these <laughs> pressures. And, and so it's something that we are groomed and bathed in from the get-go. Mm. And it's like performance is, is not the end-all, be-all. Because every single person is created with unique purpose and gifting. Like it's woven within your DNA. And it's like, why not celebrate that? And whatever is woven in your DNA may or may not be celebrated in society. Like right now, STEAM, S-T-E-A-M, which is science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. Well, the thing about these, these, these trends is that they change. And so five years ago, it was just STEM. They added the A to, to bring in the arts. And that's kind of the essence of societal standards and cultural trends is that they change. And mm-hmm. it's like, why would we put our self-worth, hand that over, that very precious self-worth to something that changes? And changes all the time. Yeah, it does. Well, the new school year has uh, begun, and that brings with it a whole bunch of spoken yeah. and unspoken uh, pressures. Um, How can moms and dads, people who are listening to us today, stay ahead of that, given uh, the the challenge that their children face and the reputation of the parents that are sort of placed on the line for how the the children 
um, perform and, uh, you know, in the midst of all of this, uh, this chaos and craziness? Okay, I love that you brought that up about the parents being, because that is sort of a trend, that your your ability to parent is seen in how well your kid is doing, like your a reflection as if you're graded on that. And I think that in this world that we live in, again, we're so used to performance reviews. And um, your kid is a human being, is a person. You know, there's good and bad that comes along with it. And sort of like put the oxygen mask on ourselves first and for our friends too. I mean, it's like... It's so evident in children because we see the pressures and we see social media at play and, you know, all these kinds of things in it. And it's like, okay, number one, is these are people. And uh, these kids that are in your house, you can love them better than anybody else. And by the way, people take a while to cook and there's good and bad. You know, the failures that are inevitably hit are actually good things. And they're, they're actually what give you grit and help you get back up. And even like the lights in the room that I'm sitting in right this minute, those lights came after a gazillion failures, you know, and there was a person that didn't quit, but there were a lot of tries and, and a lot of falling downs and a lot of getting big out because that's what a person does. And so I think so much of it is outing these pressures. Like when you start to feel it, when your kid is feeling it, talk about it, like say it out loud. This is the stress that I'm feeling, or this is the anxiety I have, or these are the worries that I have and say them and then just put truth next to it. Like hit it with something that's real. You know, I'm afraid that my kid is going to be a failure. Well, what if your kid fails in math or something else? You might know that mathematician is not, you know, on his resume, but I guarantee you there's something else. And it's like, let's find those things and breathe life into the situation instead of letting it suck it out of it. And I think it's so, so critically important to speak that life over each other together, walking alongside rather than killing each other by, you know, crawling all over each other's Mm -hmm. backs to get to the quote finish line. I love what you write in the chapter. Remember, we're image bearers. I think the key for most women is not only ditching the judgment of others, but also slowing down uh, the often misguided, overly harsh labeling and judgment of ourselves. I am determined to train my kids to self-assess in the light of how God sees them, to focus their attention on striving for excellence as it relates to their best, not the best, to let God's light rather than culture inform what they see in the mirror. And parents, adults would do well to begin there as well so that they can convey that to younger people who may, by our example, and certainly the culture's pressure, uh, be following that trend toward being overwhelmed. Yeah, it's just so true. And we are so hard on ourselves. We really actually are. There was this, you know, Dove, that had, Dove Beauty has done some interesting studies in this realm of just people, of just women mostly and their relationship with outward appearance. And they did a study where they interviewed 6,400 women between the ages of 18 and 64 in, tw- in 20 countries. So it's not just in one country around the world and ask, you know, how do they perceive beauty in themselves and other women? And 96% of the women surveyed said that they don't see themselves as beautiful, but 80% believed every woman has something beautiful in her. Hmm. And those are pretty interesting numbers. Yeah. Because if we're quick to believe it about somebody else, why aren't we quick to believe it about ourselves? And, and I think that goes to a huge part of the of a huge key to the puzzle is believing, you know, believing that you have worth. We have worth because there was a great price that was paid for it, but not in a guilty sort of way, but because you are so loved, you know, and I, one of my favorite passages is in Isaiah 43, where it says, you know, I, the Lord God himself says, I I know you, I call you by name. You are precious to me. You are honored in my sight. 
and I love you. And I don't think we believe those words. I think those are really hard to hear about ourselves and believe about ourselves. Yeah, we know of our own shortcomings, and we just cannot imagine that God knowing our shortcomings could somehow make exception, <laughs> you know, yeah, look look at us through all of that and, and just love us in the way that you've just described. Yeah, we'd be quick to tell our friend that, but not so quick to see it. And you know, one of the coolest things about a mirror is, is that it requires light to be able to see. Like, you can't see your reflection without light. And it's like, as we look in the mirror, whatever it is that we're seeing for our flaws, can we just for two seconds consider the light that is informing it? And it's like, am I going to let the world's light do that? Or am I going to let the light that the Lord sees me in, you know, inform that for a minute? And it's just like little moments to give ourselves breath. It's, and it goes to that hydration thing. I, like, I think it's like soul hydration. And so between each chapter, I, I really do these little soul hydration water stations because I think it's important to be hydrated before you hit these challenges, just like an athlete would. Yeah, yeah. I've done marathons and there's nothing more beautiful when you're on mile 19 <laughs> than seeing that hydration station and knowing that you're going to have a moment of refreshment as you're making your way toward the end. So what a great metaphor for what we're talking about. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Kay Wills uh, Wyma. She's the author of Not the Boss of Us, Putting Overwhelmed in Its Place in a Do-All, Be-All World. And by the way, it is possible (laughs) to put overwhelmed in its place. We'll talk about how when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show about 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. Continuing my conversation with uh, Kay Wills-Wyma. She's the author of Not the Boss of Us, Putting Overwhelmed in Its Place in a Do-All, Be-All World. Well, overwhelm seems to be the new normal. Too much to, uh, to manage, not enough time and energy to do it. Um, what if instead, instead of being overwhelmed with life, you could be overwhelmed by truth with all its grace, hope, peace, and love? Well, this book, Not the Boss of Us, helps us uh, discover how to get from where we are to where we'd all like to be. Now, one of the challenges we face is new technology. Smartphones have changed the landscape of uh, families, making both the knowns and unknowns pretty overwhelming. How can being overwhelmed by truth help in that context uh, where we have so little control over so much of what's possible in this new technology. Well, I think one of the biggest truths is something that we know, but it's so hard to remember in the moment. And that is the picture behind the picture. Because we see, you know, gosh, especially kids or any of us, you know, you go through an Instagram feed or even your Facebook or whatever it, whatever platform it is that you choose. And for whatever reason, our minds gravitate towards comparison. Like I look at it, either compare it with what I expect for myself or what I want for myself or absolutely the one that I'm looking at. You know, it's like the days gone past when you get the Christmas cards with those letters that told all the wonderful things about everybody, everybody mm-hmm. was going on in that household. And it's like, but I don't want anybody to know what's going on in mine. And so the first thing is, is to just say it out loud. Like that picture is a glimpse. And the reality behind every single picture is, is the same as what we're living through. And for kids, especially, you know, because Photoshop is so huge on, on these, on these photographs that they'll look at and they compare themselves to uh, celebrities. And so even right now, there's such a trend, there's such a large trend towards cosmetic surgery with teenagers Mm -hmm. that they've actually had to bring parental guidance into it. 
And it's like, okay, what's going on? Well, they think I will only look good if, you know, I, and I share a story in the book about a gal, I was in line in a pharmacy behind this very cute girl and her mom, and it was her birthday coming up. And her mom's like, what do you want for your birthday? And she said, Botox. And I'm like, what? (laughs) In my mind, I'm thinking the last thing for me that would go with a birthday is something that involved needles. You know, I'd be like, no thanks. And here's this cute young girl, and she was explaining to her mom, and I smile, I have wrinkles, and I don't like them. She heads up to the, to the cashier, because it's a local pharmacy, and everybody knows everybody. And she's like, why would you want that? You're beautiful. And the thing that she said, you know, the girl's showing her pictures, do you see my wrinkles? And this great cashier says, you know, everyone isn't perfect, and that's the beauty of it. And so in that scenario is so much power of truth. She's not walking it alone. There's people speaking truth into her. There's people loving her saying, by the way, you're beautiful, actually, the way that you are. And, and then applying it even to the pictures that she's holding in her hand. And I think that's a huge, a huge part of this game. And then to me, too, and the social media thing that I've noticed that has worked with my kids is putting real people in front of them. Because one of the things that doesn't happen is, is human conversation. Mm-hmm. And it always feels so much better. Like physically, it feels better to talk to a live human being than it does to be on the Internet. And so it's like any chance I have with my kids when they interact with a person, be it at the grocery store, picking up the cleaning, whatever it is. I'm like, how does that make you feel? And, uh, and then I catch them in the moment when they're on their phone going through a feed. And I'm like, how does that make you feel? Because they realize pretty quickly what feels better. And, um, and I think we all just need help pointing that out to my friends too. You know, my feet aren't in front of a beach. They're usually like at the dentist chair or something, you know, it's it's not (laughs) something exciting. (laughs) And so, and that's real life. And by the way, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, in chapter three of your book, rather than be overwhelmed by appearance pressure, by be overwhelmed by beauty. You write about uh, going bathing shoot uh, shopping with your daughters. How did truth inform that situation for you? And I know that there are moms who are relieved that summer is over because at least that's behind them now. Isn't that funny? It's so true. And it's like crazy. What is it about swimsuit shopping? I think it's all, you know, the fluorescent lighting and the three-ray mirror. It's just horrible (laughs) at any age. Although, isn't it funny? Because it's like, if only I could be as fat as the first time I thought I was fat. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, that'd be great. (laughs) You know? <laughs> but that doesn't happen. But even then, see, there's perspective because the truth is we all, it's funny because it's true. And it's like what I give to go back to those days. Well, in 10 years, you're going to think the same thing. And so it's like, why not enjoy today? Because today is pretty good, you know, instead of wishing for tomorrow. But with those girls, I had the golden opportunity when we were walking out because first of all, walking into swimsuit shopping with two daughters is probably not the smartest thing. And, uh, and you know, those tag size nailed them just pretty much when they got in there. And that is a number on a piece of paper, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter because we, we struggle with that. I have a friend that went shopping the other day and in one dress shopping, the sales clerk bought her a size two, a size six and a size 10. And she didn't change sizes while she was in that dressing room. And so that's even the thing about the tag, call it out. It's just a number. Yeah. And when we were walking out, that really hit us because there was a little girl in the stroller with a pacifier and she was so happy and cute. And I was like, do you think that kid knows what size diaper she has on? Cause she has no idea. It could be a six. It could be a two. It's not messing with her thoughts cause she's not letting it define her self-worth. And it's sort of like, why would we do that? Yeah. Because do you see what it does to you? It heals and it, steals the joy and you know what 
you didn't change from the minute you walked in the door to when you're walking out. But for some reason that messes with our minds. And that's where truth, it's like bring truth in. A number on a tag size doesn't say anything about your self-worth, like inside of who you are. And it's like buy into the truth of your worth. It goes back to the, what we were talking about a minute ago, you know, that you do have great worth and you, your identity isn't tied to those things. And if you have an issue with the number on that tag size, it's like exercise because you're happy to be alive, not to be a certain size. Because if we, if we tie it to that, it's like a, just that in and of itself is a prison. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about the book, Not the Boss of Us, putting overwhelmed in its place in a do-all, be-all world in which... Um, my guest, Kay Wills uh, Wyma, provides great practical insight into how to make that, that switch or switch off overwhelmed as the boss. How has your faith helped you in this, this journey or on this journey, not only personally, but with your family? Well, enormously, mostly because I consider the author of truth as the one who is in whom my faith is anchored. That said, you know, truth is truth and it will play anywhere, anytime. And so it has been a pleasure to be able to go speak and secular environments to be able to say, don't let this stuff mess with you or with your kid, because these are the truths that are underlying life. And so buy into those things. And to be able to say perspective is huge. It's an, it's an enormous tool to be able to use. And, uh, but for me personally, it's, uh, gosh, it's the answer to the whole thing. I mean, I, it's hard to not, it's hard to not end, which is where this book ends with being overwhelmed by like an eternal perspective. Because, you know, I tell my kids in heaven, those words would, should, and could, well, they aren't there. So why give them so much power here? You know, um, and, and considering the, eternity and allow it to inform today is huge. I have a great friend who used to say that when she goes into a hotel room, she doesn't like rearrange the furniture and make sure like, the, you know, get pictures for it or bring in things for it because it's a hotel room because she's only staying there for a little bit. And she's like, why do we not treat treat where we are today a little bit in that same way, not spend so much time rearranging and making the room look pretty instead of instead being the people that are walking alongside us because that's actually who matters. And I, I'm convinced the more we get our mind off of ourselves, so much of it, which is preoccupied with things that overwhelm us, the more we can see the people walking alongside us who actually need a good word too. And when you say a good word to them, you get to hear it also. Well, I would encourage every listener today to pick up a copy of Not the Boss of Us, putting overwhelmed in its place in a do-all, be-all world. While you might not need it at this moment, I can imagine there are people in your life that will and that you might need it tomorrow. So it's a great resource <laughs> uh, for that. The book is published by Ravel. And Kay Wills Wyma, thank you so much for writing it in your spare time and for sharing it with us today. I just can't thank you enough, Georgine, for having me. I really appreciate it. You are so welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Again, not the boss of us. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in this hour, we're going to talk with Julio Rivera, the uh, editorial director of Reactionary Times, on uh, what happened in Puerto Rico prior to Maria, the storm back in September of 2017, that has uh, left it crippled today, September 2018. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing and engineering today's program. Later this hour, we'll talk with Julio Rivera. We're going to talk about Puerto Rico and what he suggests is an explanation as to why it took so long for Puerto Rico to recover after Hurricane Maria last year, September of last year, suggesting there was corruption within the energy sector that contributed to it all. We'll talk with him later this hour. Well, the United States likely surpassed Russia and Saudi Arabia to become the world's largest crude oil producer earlier this year. Based on preliminary estimates in the EIA's short-term energy outlook, in February, U.S. crude oil production exceeded that of Saudi Arabia for the first time in more than two decades. In June and August, the United States surpassed Russia in crude oil production for the first time since February of 99. And although the EIA does not, that's the Energy um, Organization, Energy Information Administration, doesn't publish crude oil production forecasts for Russia and Saudi Arabia. Uh, EIA expects that the U.S. crude oil production will continue to exceed both countries' crude oil production for the remaining months of 2018 and on through 2019. Energy independence, a real possibility. Well, newly surfaced text messages between former FBI friends um, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page uh, that referred to government employees leaking like mad in the run-up to the Russia collusion probe are a disaster and embarrassment to the Department of Justice, the president tweeted earlier today. The text messages first reported uh, on Wednesday are the latest evidence to bolster the president's claim that elements within the government were trying to undermine him uh, when special counsel Robert Mueller uh, launched his probe into alleged collusion between the ca- Trump campaign and Russia. More text messages between former FBI employees are a disaster and embarrassment, he wrote. Well, the um, uh, Fox News on Wednesday obtained new text messages from from Strzok and Page, dated December of 2016. The texts were part of a lengthy exchange. It appeared to reveal a potential operation to leak for political purposes. Oh, remind me to tell you tomorrow about the Times doing a story about the uh, uh, RNC hacks, uh, Page texted Strzok. And more than they already did, Strzok uh, replied, um, I told you, Quinn told me they, uh, they're pulling out all the stops on some story. Well, a source says that Quinn could be referring to Richard Quinn, who served as the chief of the media and investigative publicity section of the Office of Public Affairs at the FBI. He uh, did not confirm that and could not be reached for comment. Well, Strzok again replied, think our sisters have begun leaking like mad, scorned and worried and uh, political. They're kicking into overdrive. In one message, Strzok apparently misread a reference uh, uh, to RNC or MC and then realizing his error blamed his old man eyes. It's unclear at uh, this point whom Strzok was referring to when he used the term sisters, though some of the intelligence community have uh, speculated it could be in reference to another government agency. Well, again, the uh, speculation about what this means and what uh, what it means moving forward uh, continues. A special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation uh, into Russian influence in the uh, 2016 election continues. These former members of his team are under increasing scrutiny, and these messages don't help the, their case at all. A veteran uh, counterintelligence agent, uh, Peter Strzok, was assigned to both the investigation into Clinton's personal email server and the special counsel's probe into p- potential collusion between the the Trump officials and Russia during the election. Strzok was removed from the Russia investigation after it was revealed that the, he exchanged anti-Trump text messages with Page, then senior FBI lawyer. Months later, in August of this year, Strzok was fired from the FBI. His attorney said, well, according to these new texts, it may, be, it may have been a broader effort uh, than originally thought. 
But again, that uh, speculation and efforts to better understand the meaning of it all continues. Meanwhile, Senator Dianne Feinstein on Thursday threw a cryptic curveball at Bert, uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, rather, insinuating the Supreme Court nominee could be guilty of a crime, even as Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee seek to delay his confirmation. Now, my understanding is this new information she made reference to uh, relates to something that occurred during his high school years. But nonetheless, the vague accusation comes after the Senate Judiciary Committee already grilled Kavanaugh and other witnesses and prepares to vote on sending his nomination to the full Senate. The White House blasted the ambiguous uh, charge as a last-minute gambit. And it was also learned that um, Feinstein had the information as early as June of this year. Um, I have received information from an individual concerning the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, she said in her surprise statement. That individual strongly requested confidentiality, declined to come forward or press the matter further, and I have honored that decision. I have, however, referred the matter to federal investigative authorities. Again, a very vague uh, reference. A spokesperson for Feinstein declined requests to elaborate on the lawmaker's statement, but there has been much speculation that she's referring to a secret letter that's been the subject of intrigue on Capitol Hill over the last few days. A source familiar with the confirmation proceedings told... uh, Fox News that Feinstein received the letter back in July, uh, rather, I think I may have said June earlier, in July, but did not make its existence known publicly until today. The letter reportedly uh, was given to Feinstein by Representative Anna Eshoo, a Democrat in California, but has not uh, been publicly disclosed by senators who have seen the document. Senator Dick Durbin, a Democrat out of Illinois, said the letter in question has been referred to the FBI for investigation, again insinuating this is a very serious, potentially criminal matter. The FBI conducts background checks on all major government appointees, including Supreme Court nominees. But, of course, he would have been background checked many times for his service uh, prior to being uh, a judge and being nominated uh, for the Supreme Court. According to a report by The Intercept, the letter was relayed to lawmakers by an individual affiliated rather with Stanford University and concerns an incident involving a 53-year-old Kavanaugh and a woman while they were in high school. Well, according to two officials who spoke anonymously, but just giving enough to be tantalizing with the uh, New York Times, the incident involved possible misconduct between uh, he and the uh, former teenager. Um, uh, And the individual who passed this on apparently works with the Me Too survivors movement. Well, despite the turmoil over the letter, spokesperson for the Senate Judiciary Committee chairman, Uh, said there is no plan to delay Kavanaugh's confirmation. Grassley set the panel's vote on Kavanaugh for the 20th of this month, and Republicans hope to confirm Kavanaugh by the start of the new court session October 1st. Senator Grassley is aware of Senator Feinstein's referral. Um, uh, Grassley's communications director said in a statement, at this time he has not uh, seen the letter in question and is respecting the request for confidentiality. There's no plan to change the committee's consideration. The White House uh, attacked Feinstein's statement as an 11th hour attack on the nominee, particularly given the fact that the letter was known prior to the uh, uh, the hearings of a week ago and was not brought up at that time in any uh, in any context, either with the FBI or with the nominee. Meanwhile, um, Democrats have sent uh, over a thousand questions uh, to Kavanaugh, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley says the Senate Democrats submitted 1,278 follow-up questions for Kavanaugh, which he says is more than uh, every prior SCOTUS nominee combined. However, apparently he answered them all. So efforts to either slow down or prevent the uh, forward progress have not uh, been successful thus far.
Meanwhile, almost every week, there's a new book about the Trump White House. But Bob Woodward's book is a category of its own. Fear came out on Tuesday, and it's already one of the top-selling books of the year, not just on the politics shelves of the bookstore, but in the entire store. Yesterday, Barnes & Noble said Fear had had uh, the fastest sale for an adult title since Harper Lee's Go Set a Watchman was released in July of 2015. The bookseller called the pace of sales phenomenal and amazing. Also on Wednesday, Woodward's publisher, Simon & Schuster, announced that more than 750,000 copies of Fear have been sold as of Tuesday, the first day it went on sale. The staggering figure includes pre-orders, first-day sales of the print copy, e-books and audiobooks, according to the company. The president uh, called Fear a cultural phenomenon. The publisher is trying to keep up with demand, but there are some big backlogs to obtain hard copy, hardcover copies. It's a testament to the widespread interest in and concern about the Trump presidency. Woodward's book describes a dysfunctional White House where some of Trump's uh, own aides think he is a danger to, the, to national security. At least that's what the book says. The only similar book that has sold as well as Fear this year is Fire and Fury, which painted a similar disturbing portrait of the president. On Amazon, Fear is the number three over overall top seller of the year. Number two is the last or last week tonight parody of a children's book about uh, the Pence family bunny. And number one is Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury. What distinguishes Woodward is his decades of reporting on Washington. He's written or co-written 19 books, including Fear. So when he sounds an alarm, it's serious. I've never seen an instance when the president is so detached from the reality of what's going on, Woodward said on NBC's Tonight Show of his book. On NPR's Morning Edition, he said people are underestimating how serious all of this is. He said people took actions to protect the country because the president wanted to do things like withdraw from from a trade agreement with South Korea. Uh, Woodward's uh, media tour is surely um, helping stoke sales of the book, but what really seemed to help sales are the early leaks from the book and the resulting condemnations from the president himself. Book critics have quipped that Trump is an effective book salesman because his angry tweets and denunciations have fueled interest in fire and fury and fear and several other titles this year. His endorsement of pro-Trump books like The Russia Hoax also helped with sales, but not as much as his expressions of outrage do. Well, in response to The Russia of fear pre-orders. Simon & Schuster ordered hundreds of thousands of extra copies. On Monday, the company said we have reprinted six times for a total of seven to meet extraordinary demand. That will put one million books in print before we've even gone on sale. Two days later, on Wednesday, the publisher said it was up to nine printings. This will eventually bring the total number of hard copies um, uh, in print to 1,100, or I should say 1,150,000. The book is selling well outside the United States as well. It's also number one on online charts in Canada, the UK, and Germany. Simon & Schuster said that foreign rights to the book have been sold in 16 countries. Now, whether or not the book is reliable, readers themselves will have to determine, but I suspect that readers who support the president will denounce uh, the contents, readers who oppose the president will immediately embrace them as absolutely uh, true. And somewhere in the middle, we need to pray for our constitutional republic. We clearly need help. 18 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 23 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the program, we'll talk with Julio Rivera. He's the editorial director of Reactionary Times on what happened in Puerto Rico. Why did it take until just recently for the power to be restored there? He's going to talk about uh, corruption he's been writing about for for a significant length of time uh, there among the utilities and some of the politicians. Well, what will it take before um, 
Well, I'm not even going to I'm not going to go there. Former uh, Secretary of State John Kerry is being slammed for conducting what they call shadow diplomacy with Iran after admitting to multiple meetings with Iranian officials behind the backs of Trump administration officials, including over the scrapped nuclear deal. An administration official said today that uh, Kerry's meetings are shameful, pointing out what Iranian backed militias are doing to kill and injure people in Syria, Iran and Yemen. Well, other Republicans suggested it may even be uh, illegal John Kerry is out of uh, is out giving advice to Iran about how to maneuver around what Donald Trump is doing. It's insidious. Ari Fleischer, the former White House press secretary for George W. Bush, said on Wednesday, I don't know if it's uh, legal or illegal. I don't care about uh, that side of it. It's wrong. Well, Kerry, the former Massachusetts senator who worked as the nation's top diplomat in the Obama administration, made the comments about his interactions with Iran as he promotes his new book, Every Day is Extra. During an appearance uh, on Hugh Hewitt's radio show on Wednesday. He acknowledged meeting with Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif three or four times since leaving office, admitting to discussing the scrapped nuclear deal and other issues. What I have done is try to elicit from him what Iran might be willing to do in order to change the dynamic in the Middle East for the better, Kerry said. Well, later on Wednesday, during the appearance on the Daily Briefing with Dana Perino, Kerry didn't deny the suggestion. His, he's telling the Iranians to wait out Trump until there's a Democrat president again. I think every Everybody in the world is uh, talking about waiting out President Trump, said Kerry, who ran unsuccessfully for president in 2004 and who has not ruled out a uh, 2020 bid. Well, uh, it was uh, first reported in May that Kerry met Zarif as he worked to preserve the deal as part of what the Boston Globe called an aggressive yet stealthy mission to put pressure on the Trump administration to keep the deal in some form. Kerry was part of the team that negotiated the deal for the Obama administration. Of course, he was no longer secretary of state when he um, went back and tried to negotiate on behalf of the United States. Trump in May, though, announced uh, plans to leave the Iran deal, declaring the pact has failed to halt the country's nuclear ambitions. And last month, the Treasury Department restored sanctions against Iraq, Iran. rather. It has been suggested before that Kerry's meetings with high-profile foreign leaders could violate the Logan Act, which prohibits private citizens from negotiating on behalf of the United States government without authorization. No one has ever been successfully prosecuted under that law. However, this is the question. What was John Kerry doing? Fleischer asked uh, on special report, what was he saying? What were the specifics? I don't think it was general. I think it was uh, he was giving Iran advice about how to wait out the president. Well, others suggested hypocrisy was uh, at play, given the suggestion that um, then Trump National Security Advisor Mike Flynn violated the Logan Act for his meeting with the ambassador of Russia during the transition. Flynn was not charged with violating the act at that time. The shadow cabinet section of um, uh, Secretary of State, rather, John Kerry conducting parallel diplomacy to U.S. government with a regime on U.S. terror list is normal, but a politician from the other political camp meeting with a diplomat of a country that has an embassy in D.C., it's a scandal. That's what uh, Waleed Ferris uh, wrote about the uh, the meetings. Well, a security al- uh, analyst Waleed Ferris referred to Flynn's situation, pointing out the media considered it a, a scandal when Flynn met with a diplomat of a country that has an embassy in D.C., but he said they consider it normal for Kerry to conduct parallel diplomacy with a regime on the United States terror list with no presence in the United States. Well, Arkansas Republican Senator Tom Cotton also knocked Democrats in the media for their hypocrisy over not raising the alarm about Kerry's comments, though he called the Logan Act a stupid dead letter law. I assume MSM and uh, Dems 
uh, who got vapors and cried Logan Act uh, when 48 senators and I released letters defending Senate's treaty power will accuse John Kerry of Logan Act violation. Kidding regarding the Logan Act, a stupid dead letter law, not kicking, um, not kidding, re-hypocrisy. That's from Tom Cotton, again, a member of um, Congress. When the reports of Kerry's contacts first surfaced this year, the president blasted him for what he called possibly illegal shadow diplomacy. The United States does not need John Kerry's possibly illegal shadow diplomacy on the very badly negotiated Iran deal. Every secretary of state, former secretary of state, continues to meet with foreign leaders, uh, Kerry went on to say, uh, goes to security conferences, goes around the world. Kerry said, we all do that, and we all have conversations about the state of affairs with the world in order to uh, understand them. Now, that may be um, a bit of an understatement of what uh, John Kerry did, but nonetheless, that was his response. Meanwhile, abortion conglomerate Planned Parenthood can put whatever face it wants at the company's head to deflect from the fact that it kills thousands upon thousands of minority babies year after year, all of whom represent the human weeds that its eugenicist founder, Margaret Sanger, had dreamed of eliminating. Well, the company's latest move is one of undeniable calculation and a shameless one at that, as it was its replacement for the outgoing president, Cecil Richards. Planned Parenthood has chosen Dr. Leanna Wen, an emergency room doctor who whose family fled China when she was a child, according to the New York Times. China, of course, is notorious for having one of the cruelest population control restrictions in the world under the guise of its one-child policy, which has uh, killed millions of unborn children, mostly girls, by way of forced abortions and infanticide. Well, that Planned Parenthood chose a woman whose parents fled such barbarity is nothing more than a slick ploy by the company to silence pro-lifers who quite rightly blast them for their... Uh, indiscriminate racism. Dr. Wynn, 35, grew up in poor Compton, California after her family left China following the Tiananmen Square massacre just before her eighth birthday, reports the New York Times. She uh, relied on Medicaid as a child and in nearly four years in Baltimore has drawn a claim for working with corporations and churches to close racial disparities in health care and sharply reducing infant mortality. Well, she's gone from reducing infant mortality to guaranteeing it when Those uh, who come to Planned Parenthood for abortions get what they pay for. The report continued. She fought to preserve Title X funding for the city's health clinics for low-income women and is leading a lawsuit that accuses the administration of intentionally and unlawfully sabotaging the Affordable Care Act. The chief executive of Planned Parenthood for Minnesota and North uh, and South Dakota called her the right leader for the moment, saying Dr. Wynn is fearless, she said in an email. As an emergency physician, she has faced dire and urgent crisis and demonstrated her ability to quickly and very effectively save lives. Hmm, What a turn of events. As an immigrant, she understands, as many of our patients do, what it feels like to be uh, on the outside, sort of, well, like those patients of abortion-minded women who come to Planned Parenthood. As a a child of rural America, she understands the unique health access challenge that people, especially women, uh, face. Well, black pro-life activists Ryan Bomberger and Reverend uh, Clenard Childress have both denounced Planned Parenthood for not only having a racist past, but for continuing that racism in its uh, practices today. Current estimates show that 247 black lives um, are uh, killed every day by Planned Parenthood with forceps, chemicals, and other devices. Congratulations to its new president, who once saved lives and now will oversee the destruction of many, many unborn children. And national and state pro-life leaders sent a letter this week to U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar urging the government to end the taxpayer-funded use of aborted fetal tissue for research. 
The letter reads, in part, we were shocked and dismayed at the news report that the Food and Drug Administration has signed a contract to purchase fresh aborted fetal organs from advanced bioscience resources for the purpose of creating humanized mice with human immune systems. We expect far better of our federal agencies, especially under the leadership of a courageous pro-life president entrusted with the health of American citizens. It is completely unacceptable to discover that the FBI is using federal tax dollars and fomenting demand for human body parts taken from babies who are aborted. Up next, we'll talk with Julio uh, Rivera. We'll talk about what happened in Puerto Rico following Hurricane Maria. And more importantly, what happened before. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, after news broke that the official death toll as a result of Hurricane Maria in September of 2017 was raised from just short of 2,000 in Puerto Rico, politicians on the left were pretty quick to criticize the federal government's response to that tragedy. Well, my next guest points out that the seeds of Puerto Rico's demise were planted by the crooked politicians who took kickbacks from the uh, local power authority in the years leading up to the 20. 2017 hurricane season. He joins us to talk about that. Julio Rivera is a small business consultant, a political activist, writer, and editorial director for Reactionary Times. His family is from Puerto Rico. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Georgina. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. Now, many of us are rightly concerned about uh, Puerto Rico, it, the length of time that it's taken to recover, at least the electric grid from uh, the results of the uh, of the hurricane, uh, the concern about the, the death toll and which numbers are true. True, in which you're exaggerated, or, or all of that. But the bottom line is, um, you're suggesting that the, the problems that we are seeing in Puerto Rico, the seeds of much of it, began much earlier than the hurricane in 2017. Yes, exactly. Um, I've always, um, you know, expressed, and I've, I've done a lot of writing on this, mm-hmm. um, that these seeds were sown uh, due to the lawlessness of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority. Um, they've squandered upwards of about ten billion dollars worth of money that was raised through bond sales, public bond sales, and financing through banks. Um, they've been involved in all kinds of corruption. Um, PREPA, um, as they're commonly known, that's their acronym, mm-hmm. together with other cronies in the energy industry, were named as a class action lawsuit um, by residents and business in Puerto Rico um, for falsifying laboratory results on the fuel. They were um, in cahoots with the former president of uh, Venezuela, Hugo, Hugo Chavez, uh, purchasing sludge oil selling it as high-grade oil and kicking back, you know, the the profits to local politicians who are enabling this sort of action. They didn't do any of the projects that they raised the money for. They were supposed to do, you know, shoring up the energy infrastructure. They were supposed to do solar energy product projects, uh, wind energy projects. They never did any of it. <clears throat> when people forget this, that before Hurricane Maria, there was another hurricane by the name of Hurricane Irma. In advance of Hurricane Irma, uh, 300,000 PREPA customers lost their electric service, and the message from PREPA at the time was that it was going to take a couple of months for them to get their energy back. So this is not uh, an event that was exclusive to this last hurricane season. They, their infrastructure has been failing for years. Now, how is that... Uh- how is that possible? Is the federal government, what oversight do they have or what involvement do they have in um, allowing this to, to happen? And what's the relationship between the federal government and the leadership in Puerto Rico? Well, I mean, right now, uh, PREPA itself is, is technically is a private company. I mean, it is in some ways uh, subsidized through taxpayer money, but it still very much is a private company. Mm-hmm. Overseeing the bankruptcy is um, they filed for a type of bankruptcy that's being overseen by what's referred to as the PROMESA board. 
Now, I wrote a piece in The Hill regarding this. Um, the, the lady that's actually overseeing uh, the Promesa board is this lady by the name of Natalie Jarelsko, who's actually a Ukrainian. Um, she's actually, um, what wound up happening is she has actually a checkered history. Um, she's actually been uh, involved with, she was a former minister of finance from, of the Ukraine. Um, and she's uh, tasked with, you know, trying to get the, uh, uh, you know, PREPA back in order financially. But she used to run the Western uh, Enterprise Fund. And while she was there, she collected $1.7 in bonuses, um, even though her salary was only about $150,000 a year. And that fund, the Western NIS Enterprise Fund, lost tens of millions of dollars under her, uh, you know, while she was overseeing it. So I think she's absolutely the wrong person to be overseeing the, Prem the Promesa Oversight Board. I mean, it's kind of like the, the fox guarding the hen house in that case. One of the things that you're advocating for is for the federal government to extensively audit the questionable business and political dealings of a utility company that's contributed to and um, exacerbated the worst humanitarian crisis of this generation. Is there? Do you see that will under the uh, um, uh, the current administration? What do you see happening that it at least gives hope that? This will ultimately be addressed by credible people. You know what? I don't really have a lot, uh, mm. a whole heck of a lot of hope, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, one thing that I called for in the past was for the Justice Department to get involved here. Because I honestly think that the level of corruption that was, uh, you know, shown by uh, PREPA and the, the officials over at PREPA and the politicians that were in cahoots with them in taking all these kickbacks. I mean, these people need to go to jail. I mean, I think that, you know, you, you get people on the left trying to blame President Trump and saying that the blood of all these Puerto Ricans is on his hands. I think that's BS. I mean, it's really on the hands of the PREPA officials and of the local politicians in Puerto Rico who enabled them to go ahead and carry on this lawlessness for as long as they did. I don't have a lot of hope right now or a lot of faith right now in Jeff Sessions to do the basic functions of his job, mm -hmm. um, much less try to solve the problems of Puerto Rico, which have been, you know, decades in the making. What about the people of Puerto Rico? Are they are they frustrated enough that they are going to demand some changes here or are they essentially powerless to insist that what needs to be done and the accountability that needs to be applied um, is, in fact, applied? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's such a culture of corruption there. There's about five major political parties in Puerto Rico and they're all left-leaning. So you're basically, you know, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't. It's truly a matter of, you know, choosing the lesser of, of five evils, in a sense. And, you know, even some of the, the high-profile politicians there in Puerto Rico, like you talk about a Carmen Yulín Cruz, you know, early on uh, in the recovery efforts, um, she was called out by the mayor of Caguas and a couple of other mayors. She wasn't even showing up to the FEMA meetings that they were conducting with the mayors of these major cities. All She was too busy going on CNN and MSNBC and all these other liberal-leaning networks to complain about Trump, basically, and, and complain about the federal government's response, which she had no right to do, considering she wasn't even uh, willing to be a part of it, be a part of the response or help strategize within the response. And this is just, you know, something that's being politicized. You're seeing Andrew Cuomo, you know, and it's funny you bring up Andrew Cuomo, uh, you know, with his, with his hot, you know, uh, primary with, um, with uh, Cynthia Nixon uh, going on. You know, she, he's trying to, you know, basically rile up the Puerto Rican base in New York, saying that he's going to file a lawsuit on behalf of the Puerto Ricans of New York against the Trump administration. And one of the tenets of that lawsuit is that he's claiming that the federal government's response was three weeks late or happened after three weeks. The truth of the matter is 
in advance of Hurricane Irma, which is, was expected to be every bit as devastating as Maria, um, uh, FEMA had already been dispatched to the island. So uh, the federal government was already in the island in advance of the uh, touchdown of Hurricane Maria. So that's a lie. Just another, again, politicizing. We're in the shadow of a midterm in about two months. The Democrats don't really have a platform other than to attack Trump. So you're going to see all this crazy rhetoric that you've been seeing over the last couple of days, like the particularly disgraceful uh, commentary from Joe Scarborough, you know, saying that Trump was more damaging to America than the yeah. 9-11 hijack. Yeah, yeah. What you painted is a pretty um, disheartening portrait of what's happening in Puerto Rico. Uh, what do you suggest needs to happen at this point to give any hope at all to the people uh, on the island that there that help is on the way, that there's the possibility of things improving, given what you've just described? Well, I think that you need to get Prepper out of there. I think that what's going to save Puerto Rico is going to be private investment. One thing that Puerto Rico has that a lot that they're not able to take advantage of is um, there's a, a, a tax uh, credit or a, it's a really a good tax shelter. It's called uh, Act 20 and Act 21 of 2012, which gives businesses migrating to Puerto Rico a 4% corporate tax rate, which is incredible. I mean, 4%, you know, beats Ireland, which is about 12.5%. It beats the United States at 21%. You know, people should be flocking to Puerto Rico to do business. But the reason they're not is because, you know, the flimsy energy grid. You know, you can't, if you're going to go down there and try to do manufacturing, you can't count on the fact that your factory is going to have electricity. You know, it could lose electricity at any given moment for weeks at a time. So, I mean, I'd go in there, I'd try to, um, you know, maybe um, convince private investment to go in there and redo uh, a stronger, better energy grid and let it, you know, still let it be ran privately, you know, but but vet the people that are in there and make sure that, you know, you're not bringing in these criminals, quite frankly, that, you know, taking advantage of the Puerto Rican people. Unfortunately, there is a lot of political ignorance there and there's not a lot of choices. There's not really, you know, uh, an honest, you know, conservative party there that, that people can really lean on. I mean, the conservatives there are outnumbered. There's really no, that I can think of, any notable uh, conservative movement coming out of Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, we're just about out of time, but there's a class action lawsuit that's been filed by the residents and businesses in Puerto Rico uh, for falsifying uh, fuel laboratory results. PREPA was named, as well as other companies, Shell Trading, uh, in, um, Inspectorate, I think, America, and others. Uh, is that likely to uh, at least shine a brighter light on the corruption there uh, that may provide a, at least a glimmer of hope? We hope so. I mean, we certainly, I mean, I'd like to see, this is the problem, this is the problem right? And right now is the perfect opportunity to bring light to these issues. And what is the media, um, the, the, the large majority of the mainstream media reporting? They're reporting that this is Trump's fault. You know, everybody's in this echo chamber just trying to knock the president. You got Luis Gutierrez going out in the news and Carmen Cruz and all these other politicians bashing Trump. And they're kind of drowning out, you know, the truth of what's going on in Puerto Rico. And that's an unfortunate thing because yeah. this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to fix this problem. And unfortunately, I, I, don't, I don't think the voices are loud enough to affect any change. Yeah. Julio Rivera, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much. God bless you. Appreciate and your it. You as well. Julio Rivera is editorial director of Reactionary Times on competing narratives on the uh, death toll of Hurricane Maria and certainly the corruption that preceded the, uh, the hurricane that's much in the news right now. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. We've been talking about and certainly focusing our attention on events that are unfolding as Hurricane Florence makes its way to landfall and uh, anticipating the level of damage and what will be needed in the follow-up. Um, I was especially struck just these last couple of days, the severe rain that we experienced here after the long, hot summer that 
that we've had. And I uh, read an article, Christianity Today Online. It's on the web-only version of Christianity Today. But uh, Douglas Estes, who is an associate professor of New Testament and practical theology at South University, he's the editor of Didacticos, and uh, his newest book is Braving the Future, Christian Faith in a World of Limitless Tech. And he uh, writes about preparing to witness an act of God, which is what we are uh, poised to do as uh, the storm approaches the East Coast. He writes that science can explain why Hurricane Florence is threatening my home, but it can't interpret it. Um, on Ash Wednesday, 1962, the dead didn't just rise up, they floated. The Ash Wednesday storm of 1962 is one of the worst storms to hit the eastern seaboard in modern memory. One of the places hardest hit was, let's see, Chen. Katig, not sure how to pronounce that, but it's an island, a tiny barrier island off the coast of Virginia. As the island flooded, the residents scurried into their upstairs bedrooms. The tidal surge was so great that it sucked the wooden burial vaults out of the ground. The dead floated down Taylor Street. Everyone alive had experienced the storm. Maybe it was a hurricane, maybe it was a nor'easter, maybe it was a tornado or gale or earthquake. I grew up hearing the stories of my grandparents being airlifted off of the island by U.S. Navy helicopter the day after the 1962 storm. In 2015, I watched as the floodwaters of the thousand-year-old flood rose rose, across my yard and ran under my house. Each one is a unique event, the sum and total of which is inexplainable from our limited human perspective. It is beyond our understanding. The night before the the storm in 1962, Waterman Herman uh, Fitchett uh, told his daughter, the barometer is the lowest I've ever seen it in my life. Something bad is going to happen. Still, in 1962, the residents of places like that island had relatively little warning. Times have changed as Hurricane Florence bears down on the eastern seaboard. Coastal communities like that one are under mandatory evacuation. At time of writing, Florence is a Category 4. It's now been downgraded to a Category 2. A tropical cyclone with winds of up to 130 miles per hour. In 1962, the Weather Service wasn't able to predict the Ash Wednesday storm. Today, we have Doppler radar that allows us to watch the hurricane's every move. Some of the images are absolutely spectacular. He goes on, modern science has provided us with a remarkable ability to explain weather patterns on Earth, explanations that ancient people would never have understood. But just as storms make us stop and pay attention today, they did the same to ancient people. One of the most well-known passages of the Bible that speaks of the storms of our world is Job 37. When Job writes about storms, no easy answer is given. Prophetically, Job tells us God does great things beyond our understanding. Job 37, 5. Christians spend an inordinate amount of time trying to explain God, who God is and how he works. And this is a good thing. Our wonder and curiosity reflect the image of our of our God in our lives. But often when God acts, there is no explanation. We can only be a witness to it. When we read the stories in the Bible of how Jesus walked on the water, multiplied the loaves and calmed the sea, the temptation that sets in for modern readers is to try to explain in human terms what God is doing. Yet as our power to explain the natural world has increased, in the modern era, our ability to experience the acts of God have decreased. That's because when God acts, it may be that we are not meant to explain it in human terms, but only to be a witness to what God does. I love the way Matthew records an unexplainable event in his gospel. After Jesus' death on the cross, he writes, the earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Matthew 27, 
51 through 53. And that's it. Matthew writes of an event that is, if experienced today, the amount of explanation we modern people would try to give for it would be limitless. Yet Matthew's matter-of-fact description suggests that what happened simply cannot be explained. You had to be there to see it. As I watched the radar images of Hurricane Florence bearing down on my location, again, uh, Douglas Estes writes, I am reminded of the great blessings modern science gives us in, in its power to explain phenomena that our ancestors could only guess at. But the explanatory power of scientific theories is eternally limited. As G.I. Pandit points out, theories explain problems that we know of beforehand, but their use also always introduces us to new problems that require further explanation. The miracles that Jesus did point us to the power of God that works in our world and in our lives. Jesus didn't ask his disciples to explain his miracles to others. He simply asked that they be witnesses to it. When we see God act in powerful ways, we bear witness. When we see people serve others in weak ways to God's glory, we bear witness. We grieve over the devastation wrought by storms like Florence, we do all uh, we do all that we can to help storm victims in Christ's name. Yet we still acknowledge, even in our grief, that His way is in the whirlwind and in the storm, as Nahum one three suggests. In these and every circumstance, we serve as witnesses, so that who God is may be known throughout our world. Acts 1.8. You can predict the storm, you can track the storm, you can prepare for the storm, but you can't interpret the storm. You can only witness it and, of course, do what we can for those who are harmed by it. Well, Hurricane Florence, which was downgraded to a Category 2, continues to make its way. Landfall is expected as early as this evening or early tomorrow on the eastern seaboard. And while they're suggesting that the uh, downgrade of the category from four to two is uh, certainly a a change, it does not mean that this is going to be any less damaging in that the storm is extremely wide and that storm surges could produce a significant amount of damage. So we'll continue to follow the uh, details even on Friday when we tend to lighten up and focus on the lighter side of the news. We'll keep one eye poised on what's happening uh, in these uh, three states um, where the storm is expected to make landfall. Well, tomorrow is uh, here on the Georgine Rice show fun Friday. So we will take a look at the lighter side of the news. And if there is breaking news, we will certainly break in and share that with you. want to um, thank James Blind for engineering and producing today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice show part of your day. Just a quick reminder, Michael Jr. That's coming up this Saturday, seven o'clock. You can go to kpdq.com for more information and for tickets. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.